Welcome to episode three of Pollock on Point. We're talking a little baseball. Brett Pollock with you back talking with a good buddy of mine, someone that I wound up working with for five years in Omaha, former big league player, nine years uh, with the Braves, the Marlins, the Reds, the Pirates, longtime minor league hitting coach, Tommy Gregg. Tommy, good to catch up with you. How are you, my friend? Well, Brett, I'm doing fine in these times, in these crazy times. I'm doing actually pretty well. Good to talk it's great with to you. hear. Yeah, great to, great to talk with you again. Let's talk a little bit about uh, those years in Omaha, 2011, 2015, five years we worked together. You were actually in Omaha for eight years with the Royals. And you know, it was really interesting because during that time period that we were together, the team played for a championship in the Pacific Coast League each of the first four years, won it three times, won a couple of AAA national championships, which is somewhat odd, I guess, if you will, in AAA because of the nature of being so close to the big leagues because there's generally roster turnover, and yet this team managed to have a lot of success. So as a hitting coach and part of the staff, how difficult is it for you in that kind of situation to balance trying to help a guy get to the big leagues or get back to the big leagues and yet still get that guy to buy in to have that winning culture and be a part of a team that's winning because he's looking out for himself knowing that he's just one step away from the major leagues. Well, I've always said that AAA is probably the hardest uh, actually level of sports to coach in. And fortunately, you know, we had a good coaching staff and, uh, during those times, I mean, it's it, you're right. It is very difficult at AAA to keep guys focused um, on on what they're doing daily in AAA, not look ahead of trying to uh, only focus on getting the big leagues because that's the majority of the guys' goals. Obviously, is to is to play well to get to the big leagues. So the team aspect of winning in AAA or uh, you know, going through the daily grind of AAA is, uh, you know, it's tough for guys and it's tough on coaching staffs because some guys obviously are just out for themselves. So there's a lot of selfishness in AAA and it's up to the coaching staff to uh, find a balance as to how to coach the guys and motivate them um, of where they are now and, and, and performing. And, you know, our main thing was to talk about, look, if you win – in AAA, if you're winning here, you're creating a good atmosphere and you're going to enjoy coming to the park. And when you enjoy coming to the park, you enjoy working harder and practicing harder and you'll get better. And then when you're playing, you know, all that combination and you're playing better and you're winning, you get noticed more. So we tried to, as a coaching staff, create a you know, positive, fun environment to where the kids, you know, actually thought about, you know, winning. And once we did win that first year, I think it just kind of snowballed. And it was one of the hardest things I think that was accomplished in minor leagues was winning back-to-back championships, national championships. And and for a while, we were in it all the time. You know, we, we were in it for a few years uh, consecutively. And, and just to do that is just a testament to the coaching staff that was there. Um, and the players that we had that bought into what we were trying to get them to do and and how to think and how to and just keeping them motivated really yeah and a lot of those guys that you coached during that time period in Omaha went to the big leagues and were part of the Royals championship team 
in 2015, Moustakis, Hosmer, Lorenzo Cain, Salvador Perez, Paulo Orlando, Jared Dyson, as a guy who had played in the big leagues and had gotten to the World Series but didn't win a ring, how gratifying was it for you to be a part of an organization and have a big hand in that organization ultimately winning the biggest prize in the sport? Well, that's, yeah. I mean, I've really thought I had a big part of that. I mean, there were, like you said, you mentioned a lot of guys that came through AAA, you know, and all the coaches in the minor leagues. Most of those guys went through all all the coaching staff, single A, double A, triple A. Um, but, you know, my in AAA, that's the final step. I think that's more, my job was more of fine-tuning what the other coaches have done and the work that the kids have done coming through the system and my job in AAA is now to let them know, okay, this is what it's going to be to play in the big leagues. This is the next step. And it becomes more mental at that, I think, in AAA. Their their muscle memory mechanically is pretty locked in. I can tweak them a little bit hitting and uh, more or less. But the mental side of the game, how to handle you know the competitiveness at, at the big league level or even AAA because a lot of players in AAA have played in the big leagues, so it's pretty similar. Now all of a sudden, it, you know, that's the time you're going to see guys either can handle it or they can't, you know, can they handle the failure of, you know, the mental part of it, grinding in AAA daily. But all those guys that went through, I was so proud to see them, you know, eventually we get to the World Series and eventually win it. And I felt like I was a big part of it. I mean, I'm sure all the minor league coaches did, but I really uh, took a lot of pride in that ring that they gave us. You just mentioned talking about uh... – the grind of going through a triple a season and then trying to impart what it's like to go through that at the big league level you did it for nine years so when you're talking to guys who haven't been there and maybe even guys who have been there does that give you more authenticity more credibility because you lived it oh no doubt i mean i've lived triple a i lived the big leagues and uh you know it's funny because when you get to the big leagues it, it you know it's a little it seems a little easier. People say, you know, it's harder to stay. Once you get the big leagues, it's harder to stay there. And that's true. I mean, I was up and down a few times, but the lifestyle is a little bit easier. You're flying charter playing after the game. You know, you get there at two or three in the morning to your next city you're playing in, but you're sleeping in a five-star hotel. You know, AAA is the worst travel in all of sports. I don't care what anybody says. You know, we fly and everybody's like, oh, you fly. Well, you're up at 3.30 in the morning after getting to bed at 12 after a game, after doing reports. And, and you know, you got to go to the airport and stand in line and, and it's a chartered flight and you're flying and laying over somewhere. And you get to your destination at 1 o'clock in the afternoon and you're, you eat lunch, you go to the park, you play a game at night. That's tough. <laughs> that's tough so, Definitely. You know, people really understood what AAA is like I think you'd have people would have a little bit more sympathy for AAA players which doesn't really matter but um, but yeah my experience I and that was part of it I mean when I would talk to a kid and I wasn't talking to him just about his hitting mechanics I'm talking about his mental preparation I'm, I'm talking about you got to take care of yourself you got to eat right when you're flying it's tough your body's going to feel it you got to uh, there's a lot of things you got to really be aware of in AAA with with the grind of it, including travel and playing so many games at a time. Which, I mean, we're talking two days off a month in for a five month season. It's it's it was it was tough. Yeah, you mentioned uh, during your career that you were back and forth between the big leagues and AAA. After you've been in the big leagues and spent entire seasons like you have, and then you go back to AAA, how difficult is that? Yeah, it was hard. I mean, it was. More mental. I mean, 
I think the first time I went down, I was a little embarrassed, like, you know, what's wrong with you? Why'd you get sent down? And, um, and I was just mentally tough though. I mean, I didn't, after I got down there and got into games and play and I was back to my old self and saying, okay, I'm getting back. And, and I did, and I played well enough to get back. I mean, I came down, I won a batting title and triple A and got back to the big leagues. I actually was out of baseball for a little bit and went down to Mexico and had to kind of play down there at Mexico city in their summer league. And, and then the next season I was back in AAA with the Marlins and back in the big league. So I, I went through a big time up and down roller coaster ride from the big leagues to, to the minor leagues. And, um, but it was just, how do you, how do you handle it? How do you handle the failure? Do you learn from it or you just get frustrated and give up or you just keep rolling on it? And I was just keeping rolling on that roller coaster, seeing if I could go back uphill. And eventually I did. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned handling failure. And I would talk to a lot of people when I was working in baseball and say to them, think about this. It's the only sport where you're considered great if you're successful three out of 10 times where you mm-hmm. fail twice as often as you're successful yeah. as a hitter. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I work with kids, younger kids. I have some high school. I, I mean, I work with eight to 12 year old kids sometimes. And, and, convincing the parents also they need to understand it when they're watching their kid, their kid's going to fail. And I said, you know, if he can't handle failure, it's going to be a tough sport for him. He probably needs to play soccer or something or or lacrosse. Those are good sports. You know, you're not going to fail, you know, three out of seven out of 10 times. You're not going to be like, okay, I let the team down. And that's a hard part about it. I mean, it's hard to, hit a baseball. It's hard to square a ball up and hit a line drive at the shortstop and he catches it and you, you didn't get a hit and you think you failed. And, you know, so that's, that's the mental part that is really tough. And, and that's why there's only a few percentage of players in our country that make it to the big legs because it's so, it's so hard mechanically, physically, mentally, emotionally. Uh, Tommy Gregg is my guest, a uh, longtime big leaguer and longtime hitting coach. Let's talk a little bit about hitting since you mentioned mechanically, and there's been such an emphasis and so much talk over the last couple of years about launch angle. Tell us a little bit about launch angle in terms of are, is there too much emphasis on it? Is there too much talk about it? And how much different is it uh, when you talk about launch angle compared to what guys were doing maybe before there was so much talk about launch angle? Yeah, well, um, I'll just go back when I played. I mean, I, I never tried to hit a ground ball, to be honest with you. Um, I was always trying to drive the ball in the gap. I mean, back in my day, we'd have computers and, you know, angle things telling us what type of 15% angle or 25% angle you need to hit the ball, and this is your swing path and playing, and exit velocity and all that. And don't don't get me wrong, that's all good. I wish I'd have had that stuff back then. I wish I'd have had more video back then. I mean, my video was black and white. <laughs> but anyway, when I was – when I was hitting, I had the same thought. I wanted to hit it uh, angle. Like I, if you threw me a down and in fastball, I'm going to lift that ball out in front, catch it out in front and lift it at an angle to where it either goes a line drive in the gap or the line drive goes over the fence. So my thought about launch angle when I played was how far I could hit a line drive. And today it's the same thing. It's just we have it on paper and a computer and video. But at some point, I think there's some – some instructors that get overboard with just hitting the ball up in the air and creating, it's almost creating bad mechanics for me 
uh, leaning back too much, swinging up too early through contact. You're seeing a lot more strikeouts, and kids don't care. And I, and I think instructors and, and coaches don't emphasize you know, striking out as much anymore um, because if you can do damage, that you know we're going to do damage every pitch and not worry about striking out. But uh, that's the only issue I have because back in my day, it was, you know, you, you took pride in not striking out. Um, you wanted to put two strikes to put the ball in play. But before two strikes, back in my day, we tried to do damage. I was trying to get the ball line drive in the air and not hit the ball on the ground. I wanted to hit the ball at the park. We all did. I mean, there's not one player that's ever played baseball that didn't want to hit the ball over the fence consistently. So, you know, it's just a combination of they've got – you know, back in my day, it was more visual and mental how I wanted to hit the ball. And uh, today, it's more you can see it on the computer and on video of how you want to hit the ball. It's interesting you bring that up because video definitely has changed uh, how guys like yourself do the job and how players try to go about doing their job. Is there too much reliance potentially on it uh, from both a coaching and player standpoint? And maybe is is there a point where guys are trying to do too much, i.e. video, i.e. soft toss hitting in the cage, where maybe they're just thinking too much? No question. There's a lot of a lot of analyzing, a lot of thinking. Uh, um, the, the, thing that, the thing that worries me is there's a lot of cloning going on about this is the type of swing you need to hit the ball up in the air. Uh, and you got to remember, and I've always told kids this, if you're not strong enough to hit it out of the park, why are you swinging up under the ball to hit it up in the air? I mean, it's just going to be an out. Um, now, if you get bigger and stronger and, you know, you take the same swing and you're hitting the ball and the ball goes further and it goes over the fence, great. But there's a lot of kids that don't have the size. Some of, these, some of this launch angle and swinging up under is for bigger kids that can actually hit a ball high and really far and it goes over the fence. That's great. But there's – you can't clone everybody. And there's, you know, there's a lot of work that's done in the cage. I see sometimes that if, um, you know, it's, it's telling everybody the same thing. My, I've always believed this as a, as soon as I started coaching that every hitter is uh, individual and you have to kind of find out what makes their swing work and what can make them better as individually, as far as tweaking this or that. And it's still with the same concept of, of getting line drive base hits and, you know, once in a while backspinning the ball or lifting the ball and getting it out of the park if your strength allows that, if you hit the ball hard and far enough. But, um, yeah, I see a lot of cloning. I don't see a lot of uh, you're an individual. Let's, this is going to make you better and you need to be this type of hitter or this is what you can do to make be better. I've always thought there's three types of hitters, a power hitter that's going to hit for doubles and home runs and RBI guys going to strike out more and hit left, less for average. And you've got the, the guy with no power, but he has a lot of speed. He needs to be a contact guy, a walk guy, get on base, steal bases, score runs. And then you got the triple threat guy that can hit for power, hit for average, has some speed. So that's the kind of thing I try to break kids down and say, well, you, you know, this is more your alley as far as hitting now. Mechanically, we need to do this, to, to, you, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I like to take kids individually and see what I can do to make each kid better. Yeah, and I will certainly vouch for that, uh, having been on the field for batting practice with you for five years. And one of the things I always enjoyed watching was you working with guys and doing those small things, those little tweaks, maybe repositioning his hands, you know, moving them up or down or moving the bat higher, whatever the case may be. And I always, it always stood out to me how you worked individually with guys and took the time to really try 
to make those adjustments that would make them a better hitter. Yeah, I think now there's a lot of philosophies. This is our philosophy, and this is how we're all going to try to hit the ball. And 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 when you start hiring guys that don't have experience, um, you're going to find that that you're just going to have those guys are just going to clone guys and say this is what we're looking for as as a group or as an organization. This is how we want everybody to hit. Uh, because you don't have instructors like myself being able to take a kid individually and taking them in the cage and saying, look, this is going to make you better. Now, this is going to make uh, John better over here, but this is going to make you better because this is what type of hitter you are. So that's kind of what you're seeing now is more kind of group clone type of uh, philosophy teaching instead of being able to one on one philosophy teaching. Tommy Gregg joining us here on Pollock on Point. Let's go back. Let's talk a little bit about that playing career of yours Mm -hmm. that we had mentioned earlier. Uh, You were drafted out of high school, drafted out of college, ultimately drafted uh, as a senior by the Pirates, and you begin your minor league career with the Pirates and get to the big leagues just a couple of years after uh, you were drafted in 1985. 1987, you make your big league debut straight from double A. One of the great things about baseball is when a guy finds out for the first time that he's going to the big leagues. Mm-hmm. It's always a great story. What was that story like? What was that experience like for you when you found out you were getting the call to go to the major leagues? Well, it was it was, uh, it was, it was pretty cool. I'll be honest with you. I had a fantastic year. I'm not going to sit here and brag about myself, but I had a huge double-A season that year. Um, and I, I, hit Senators? I led the league in hit, and I was just on fire pretty much the whole year. I really did some springs – uh, things in spring training that uh, kind of turned my whole life and career around. I worked with a uh, optometrist, an eye doctor that was into baseball, and he came into spring training into the Pirates camp, and I bought into a lot of stuff he was talking about and the drills and training the eyes and concentration, focus, relax, relaxation. I took that into the season, and it pretty much turned everything around for me. And I had a huge year. We ended up winning the championship. It was fantastic. And you know, when we celebrated, Dave Trembley, our manager, uh, you know, got everybody quiet and told everybody that myself and a couple other guys, Tom Prince and Felix Vermeen, we were gonna uh, we were heading to the big leagues. So um, it was it was a thrill, man. We uh, you know we celebrated that night, got up early in the morning, and drove to Pittsburgh. And and the funny thing was. You know, I was I was so excited to be there, but I didn't get a lot of sleep, and we we celebrated, and and that ended up being the longest game of the the year. <laughs> it went into extra innings, and I was on the bench for I don't know five six hours. It went into like one in the morning. It was the longest game. I'm going, man, this is what it's all about right here. But I'm tired. <laughs> But it was fantastic, man. I mean, it was it, – it's what, it, you know, I worked for. It's uh, – you know, it. Yeah, I didn't spend a lot of time in, in the mid, in the minor leagues before I got the big leagues. But, I mean, I, I worked my tail off and I sacrificed mentally and physically to do everything I could to get there. Yeah, and then that big league debut, I think, came in the 14th inning of a game yeah. uh, at Three Rivers against the Expos. What was that experience like for you when you're well, wearing the uniform? taking the field for the first time and the culmination of that dream now really does come true. Well, I mean, I got to laugh because I was the last guy on the bench. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I don't know, Jim Leland was a manager and he's very intimidating. And, you know, uh, he really just, when I came in, 
when I got to the park, he just called me in the office, said, congratulations, suit up, you know, uh, glad to have you. Congratulations, blah, blah, blah. And that was about it. And I, I didn't say much. So I just, I mean, I'm looking around. You got Barry Bonds, Andy Van Slake, Bobby Bonilla. I mean, there's <laughs> some big guys in that locker. Anyway, that game lasted 14 innings. I'm sitting at the end of the bench with my head uh, on my back, on, sitting in the dugout, and uh, and I hear, Greg, you're next. Get up. You're pinch hitting. I, I mean, it was 14th inning. Of course, I was nervous, and um, I faced the guy, Jeff Parrott. And if I, you know, you think back on things in your life that you could have all over again. And during that season, and then I had, you know, that double A season before I got the big leagues, I swung at the first pitch a lot of times. I was a, I was ready for it, anticipate it. If you made a mistake, I just took that first pitch and did some damage. And I could not pull the, I could not pull the trigger on my first big league pitch, and it was right down, fastball inside, down and in. Just what I love. I couldn't pull the trigger on it, and it ended up striking out on three pitches. <laughs> so that was my debut. But I was so tired that I got back to that hotel room. I went right to bed. I had to sleep. Now, do you, do you remember your first big league hit a couple of weeks later against Jay Ballard? Mm-hmm, I do. It was a fastball down and in, and I hit a double in the right center gap, and it was. Uh, I think at that time that made me one for seven. So it took a while to get my first hit. Um, and I, it was a double. At least it was an extra base hit. I was excited. Uh, and once you get that, then it kind of relieves you a little bit, you know, because I, I was thinking I was never going to get that hit. And, you know, I don't know. I didn't know when I'd be back in the big league. So I was, I was very glad to get that double. And and for those of us who uh, grew up in Philadelphia in the 70s and 80s during the Phillies' heyday, Jay Baller was the fifth and final piece of the trade that brought Von Hayes from the Indians to the Phillies. And uh, I love that. Kind of interesting. Great. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, interest, interesting piece of history. So let's continue on kind of chronologically uh, throughout your career. September 1st, 1988, a year later, after your big league debut, you get traded by the Pirates to the Braves. And I, I guess to a degree, you know, when you get drafted by a team, you think there's probably a decent chance, maybe a good chance that you have the opportunity to spend your career with that one team. So what's it like when you get traded? And what's it like when you get traded fairly early in your career? Well, I mean, it was mixed emotions. You know, I was thinking that, okay, why am I getting traded? Do they not like me? And then Sid Thrift called after the trade and and was very honest with me. He said, Tommy, I just don't see you getting to the big leagues and playing here. <laughs> I got Bobby Bonilla, uh, uh, Andy Van Slyke, and who was the other one? There was somebody. Uh, Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds, yeah. So, yeah, I wasn't going anywhere. Uh, <laughs> if when I get there, I wasn't going to play. So, He's like, I wanted to get you somewhere where I thought you could play. At the time, the Braves weren't very good. I, and uh, and uh, went over there and just jumped right in the lineup pretty much and and started doing well right out of the shoot uh, because I knew I had an opportunity. And I and I didn't put any pressure on myself. I just said, you know, they're, they're not very good. I can jump right in here and play and be a part and see if I can open up some eyes. And I did. I had uh, I played well for about three weeks and – and other, uh, you know, and I stayed there for the next few years. So it was really a great opportunity. It worked out well for me. Uh, sometimes trades don't work out for people, and they did. It did for me. I was excited to go go to the Braves. 
And that following year, 1989, you make your first opening day roster. And maybe to some people who haven't been in the game or don't follow the game at much, it might not seem like a big deal, but it really is a big deal. How significant was it for you in 1989 to be able to make that opening day roster for the first time? Well, I went into spring training uh, that year and I, I actually expected to make the team. So um, when I did make the team, it was definitely a thrill. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of big on expectations for myself. And, and when I say I expect to do something, you know, I, I feel like it's no surprise. But I got to admit, I was pretty thrilled. <laughs> I got to, you know, travel with the team out of spring training to be on the big league team and then pretty much started. And, um, and, uh, so yes, I, I planned on, I had a great spring and was so, was super excited to, to make the team for sure. So let's fast forward now to 1990, mm-hmm. Bobby Cox takes over in the middle of the season. You mentioned playing for Jim Leland. How significant was that in the Braves evolution and their ultimate run to their sustained success when Bobby Cox took over? Well, you know, when he took over, we still had a couple, what, one, one, still one rough year right then. And then we had the beginning of 91 where it was still rough and, but we brought in better players. So, you know, the combination of a good manager like Bobby Cox, who's going to treat you just like you're, you're, you're his grandson. Um, and with better talent, it was just a matter of time. And uh, it was just a matter of time until we gelled as a team and the chemistry got better and everybody decided, you know, we're tired of losing. Let's let's put this thing together and uh, start winning. How would you compare and contrast playing for Bobby Cox to playing for Jim Leland? Well, that's an interesting question because I, I've actually talked about this quite a few times to people that Jim Leland was very intense, uh, very knowledgeable, and coached his players differently than obviously Bobby Cox. I mean, he was more into his motivation was, you know, screaming and yelling and tipping over tables of spreads after games he didn't like and slamming doors and yelling and cussing and smoking cigarettes. And Bobby Cox was more about, you know, patting you on the back no matter what you did and saying how great you are and walking in after every game, win or lose, and saying, good job, get him tomorrow, guys. Yeah, one of my early fond memories uh, in baseball was being at the winter meetings and sidling up to the bar at whatever hotel we were at uh, during the uh, convention and, and seeing Jim Leland order a drink and and just chain smoking while at the bar. <laughs> yeah, he was sitting in that corner of that dugout and you could barely see that cigarette in his hand. He had it covered up in there and uh, it, we all laughed. It was funny. I mean, guys did that in the, in the tunnel all, back in my day all the time. They'd just go back in the tunnel and smoke cigarettes and you know, and chew the back at the same time. It was, yeah, it was old school back then. So let's go back to uh, that 1991 season, because as you mentioned, you know, the Braves were kind of hovering around the 500 mark during a good percentage of that year. You guys come out of the all-star break. You're basically at 500. Uh, Even into early August, you're five games over and all of a sudden it turns around and you guys go like 40 and 20 down the stretch. Mm back was there a particular play a particular game well uh, maybe a series that really kind of brought it all together and you guys realized hey we've got something going here and, and we're gonna you know supercharge this uh all the way to the world series yeah i, I don't know uh, obviously not many people don't know the story about that but when we got to all-star break and we can, we all came back after 
you know, last day of the All-Star break. We had a players-only meeting, and it was held, held by Terry Pendleton and Sid Bream, and um, each person had to get up and say something about what it's going to take to turn everything around. And we all did. Um, no matter what guys said, somebody, everybody got up and spoke and said some little thing. And we just agreed that we're going to see if we can come out and start playing, taking each game at a time and winning. And we, we had a better chemistry. We had, and of course it helps when you win after you have a meeting like that, where you end up winning like three games in a row. So we got some confidence, and and the Mets. I think it was the Mets started losing, so we started seeing that nine game start even and out a little bit. And we said, "Hey, we we got a chance at this," and we just started playing great. And then I think it put a lot of pressure on whoever was above us, and it was just one of those amazing things. The worst of first, they call it, and the fans started getting into it, and every game became magical. You know, like we couldn't lose. We're going to come back and win. We had rally hats, and it was it was really cool. That was probably the most exciting time I, I've ever spent with. Besides, you know what? Besides winning the national championship games in AAA, that was very special to me. But but uh, going back, going worst to first, and then getting to the World Series, so it's uh, nothing. Nothing can probably beat that. I want to go back and ask you about Terry Pendleton, but before I do that, since you mentioned it. Uh, I did want to ask you about the environment in the old Fulton County Stadium with all mm-hmm. the people coming to the games and the tomahawk chop. And, you know, you hear all about the crowd and how much it can energize players and, and what it's like to be in that environment. But having lived it, what is it really like? I mean, how much of an impact uh, and, and, you know, can it really make on a player, make on a game, make on a series? Well, it, it just energizes you. You've got this intensity, you know, from the – from first pitch on because the crowd's into it. And when you're down, when you, when you get down, uh, you know, in the game, the, the crowd starts chanting and they want you to get back in it. It wasn't like booze. It was say, you know, we got you back. And there's nothing like that, you know, and instead of playing an environment where, you know, you start losing fans start booing. And so you got mixed emotions, but that year it was pretty much, they, they had our back no matter what, and we felt it. And from first pitch to the last pitch, we were in every game and felt like we were in every game or we could come back and win every game. It was one of those just mental, magical, emotional uh, rides that was really cool. And talking about Terry Pendleton, he joined the team that year, having prior experience in the playoffs and the World Series with the Cardinals. How much – of an impact did he make? How much did he help to change the culture and, and help the Braves get things turned around? Yeah. I don't, you know, he just, his influence was just calming presence. He was fun, loving guy. You could, nothing bothered him. And he was just very friendly with, with all everybody. He was just such a great teammate. Um, it, it was more just, Hey man, let's just relax and play the game and, and, uh, and pull every, you know, everybody pull together. And that was his main thing. Let's all play together and, and instead of playing as individuals and we might accomplish something. And he was right. And he, and he led by example. I mean, he played, played the game pretty hard and he went, he played to win every day. So just a great example. He was. Those two playoff series that the Braves were involved in in 1991 were tremendous right. nationally championship series against the Pirates, who you had started your career with, who had traded you to the 
games. Uh, was there a little extra satisfaction for you beating the Pirates to get to the World Series that year? You know, not really. I'll be honest with you. I was just wanting to beat them. Um, but I didn't have any animosity towards the, the Pirates at all because um, – it changed my life around getting traded. I was able to go somewhere and play. And I don't know, like Sid Thrift said, I I might not have made it back to the big leagues for a while. And uh, so at least I was a part of that World Series because I got traded. And, you know, it was it was great beating the Pirates. But, uh, you know, it wasn't like, yeah, let's beat them because I got traded. It was, you know, I'm, I'm a Braves now. And I want to win and I want to beat them and I'm going to go to the next level. I want to go to the World Series. That was it. Yeah, and what a World Series it was. Uh, goes to the seventh game. The Twins win it in extra innings. Five of the seven games decided by a run. What was it like? And you had a couple of pinch hitting uh, opportunities during that World Series, but what was it like being a part of it, and especially in Game 7, just watching that game on unfurl itself, watching the classic pitching duel between Jack Morris and John Smoltz? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I, I I have a bad habit of biting my nails. And, and <laughs> after the, that series, I had no nails left. I just would sit on the bench and, and watch and and just wait for my opportunity to pinch hit to see if I could do something. And, and when I did hit a couple times, I was, man, I I was so nervous. I can't even hardly remember how I felt. Um, but every game was intense. The crowd was intense. We were just – we were just – it was nuts, dude. It was a time – probably I'm going to say one of the greatest World Series ever. Um, I mean, you got to put it up there with the top five maybe. Especially game seven was, was a crazy game. That was intense and obviously sucked that we lost. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was cool. Just a great – environment in both places uh crowd wise and in uh, uh emotion wise intensity wise it was it was uh it was kind of maddening it was just like oh my gosh is this ever you know who's going to win this thing and uh it was cool now if i understand correctly after the braves had acquired john smoltz from detroit you were his first roommate mm-hmm. that is correct i introduced him to his wife also which he's probably not really thrilled with me now but um, we ended up getting a divorce, but he got four kids out of it. Come on. Uh, but yeah, we were in together and we had a great time. We got to know each other. Well, um, both, we're both very, we we're very, very competitive. Uh, but just things worked out for him. You know, I moved on and went to a couple other organizations, which I wish I could have stayed with the Braves, but it just didn't work out that way. But, uh, was fortunate to become good friends with him and I'll see him often. I saw him a few times in spring training and have seen him out in golf, played in his golf tournament recently, got to talk to him, played with him actually there. So, you know, we keep in touch as much as we can. That's awesome. Tommy Gregg joining us on Pollock on Point, uh, nine years in the big leagues with a couple of teams, longtime minor league hitting coach. Uh, As you mentioned, you moved on from the Braves, wound up with the Reds, 1993, played with another fairly significantly well-known and very successful manager, Davey Johnson, Mm -hmm. during your short time. Perez, what was it like playing for him? Well, you know, we had Tony Perez in spring training, and in the season we only lasted 44 games with him, and he was great. I, I really enjoyed playing for him and, and being around him, and then David Johnson came in and kind of took over, and he was, he was good too. Uh, but the Reds organization was was great. I played with Barry Larkin, Eric Davis. Um, I mean, it was a uh, – 
it was a great experience also. I, I wish I could have been in the big leagues a little more with them. I spent a lot of time in AAA, but um, uh, spent my time there, and then I moved on again. So I just kept on rolling. Any um, interaction with Marge Schott while you were there? <laughs> I saw her on the field almost every day with her dog and just kind of looked at her like, what's going on? You know, <laughs> what, are, what are we doing here? <laughs> but she was in charge, you know, and uh, Jim Bowden, Bowden or Bowden was the, was the general manager and he had his son on the field every day with us. And, um, you know, so just um, Marge Schott, she was nice. I met her, talked to her briefly, but uh, it was just, a little strange seeing that big old, I don't know what kind of dog it was, but uh, it was a big dog, you know, on the field. It was kind of cool. So, yeah. You had mentioned having played in Mexico City in 1994 with the mm-hmm. Mexico City Reds. What was that experience like and how different, how similar was it to uh, playing professionally and playing in the big leagues here in the United States? Well, yeah, it just, like I said, I had to move on. And, and uh, I think that 94 was a strike year, but um it, it was one of those things where I had to decide what I was going to do, um, how I was going to continue to stay in the game. And I ended up running into um, Cam Bonifay, who was the general manager with the Pirates, and you know asked me where I was going to play. And I said, just not sure, you know. And uh, he said, well, if you're not sure, we're affiliated with a team in Mexico City, and you can go down there and play and stay, you know, just stay, you know, continue to play until you get back or whatever. And so I decided to do it, and I ended up in Mexico City, and it was quite an experience. I mean, I was probably only American within a 10-mile radius of where I was staying and playing. So it was a, it was an eye-opening experience, something that I had to really buckle down and, and decide that, you know, if I'm going to stay here, down here and do this, I'm going to make it worth my while. And the funny thing was they had the team I was playing on, they had not won the championship in about 30 years. And I had a really good season and, and decided I was going to do as good as I could. And, and as under the circumstances, I was not going to complain. I was going to play the way I should play. And I ended up hitting, I think I ended up hitting about 350 and, and we ended up winning the championship. And it was, uh, it was another amazing time for me of my sacrifice that I put in away from my family and having to, go play and play on dirt track fields, pasture, cow pasture fields. And it was one of those things that was, it, it, I took a little, a lot of pride in, in going down there, playing well, winning a championship. And then of course, coming back and getting back to the big leagues. And how, how was your Spanish after that experience? Well, Brett, interestingly, <laughs> I took two years of Spanish in college and didn't learn a thing. And I got down <laughs> in four months in Mexico city and I learned more than I did in two years. Because and I tell people, because, you, you know, if you if you go to a place and you you have to eat and survive and nobody wants to speak English or knows how to speak English there, you, you've got to figure it out. And I had to figure it out pretty quickly how to say I want to order eggs and, and you know, some toast and bacon in the morning and uh, and communicate with my teammates or, you know, it was going to be very lonely. <laughs> and it was lonely. I was by myself a lot. Um, and uh, but uh, I made it through. And it was very satisfying. 
Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. I think that's something that does get overlooked a little bit when you look at a lot of the Latin players that come to the United States when they have to do the same thing, right? They have to learn how to assimilate. They have to learn how to speak the language, walk into a restaurant when they're on the road and be able to order food. I remember being in El Paso. Uh, Alcides Escobar was with us and mm-hmm. he, the brewers made him take English classes like two days a week. He had a tutor that yeah. came to the ballpark uh, yeah, to teach him English. I agree. You know, yeah. It's tough. It's lonely and you feel... Uh, out of your comfort zone, obviously. And, and, uh, but the funny thing was I didn't have a tutor or any classes of English down in Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> we do that with the guys here and that's great. And I'm, I'm all for it. But you know, when I went to Mexico, it's, it's pretty much, I got off the plane and, and, uh, it's like, okay, I'm on my own. And, um, and that's the way I took it. And I, I took pride in, you know, learning the language and communicating and, um, so yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough uh, acquisition. It's a tough change to do something like that. It's, it's, you got to be mentally tough to to handle it. I'll just say that. Yeah, no question about it. I think I sh- I said El Paso by mistake. I, I should have said Huntsville with Alcides Escobar. Nevertheless, uh, you come back to the big. You play with the Marlins in 1995, back with the Braves to wrap it up uh, in 1997, get back to the playoffs and, and lose ultimately uh, to the Marlins, who wound up going on to win the World Series that year, and then back to Mexico City But and in 1998, and then you decide that it's time to hang them up. How difficult as a player is it to take off that jersey for the last time and decide, you know what, I, I've run my course, I, I can't do this anymore, it's time for me to transition into something else? Well, you know, Brad, I, I think I talked to Tanya, my wife, at that time, and I'd come back from Mexico, Mexico City again, and, and I played well, and we got the playoffs. We didn't win it, but I went down there again. Uh, the owner really wanted me to come down, and I knew I was finishing up my career. I was 30, I think I was 35 years old, and that is a long time to, to play, especially in the minor leagues in two years in Mexico. It's, it's It wears you out, and um, so I was mentally and physically tired when I got home and, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I, and of course my wife's saying, you know, still want to play. And I'm thinking, yeah, I guess. And, and I got a call from John Scherholz, uh, from the Braves asking me if I wanted to coach. They were interested in me becoming a coach with them. And I was like, well, you know, I still think I can play and I'm not sure. And so he says, okay, we're going to give you two weeks to decide. And I said, okay. And for two weeks, I called a couple teams and, didn't hear anything from from them, from any teams about a job, and you know it was one November, uh, um, October, November, so it was a little early. <coughs> and um, so after two weeks, I called John back and said, you know what, I've talked to Tiny. We decided I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go into coaching. That's something I knew I'd want probably do eventually. And so he sent me the contract. A couple of days later, I signed the contract and put it in my mailbox. And when I walked back in the house, my phone rang. And it was Ken Williams with the Chicago White Sox asked me to play AAA in Charlotte. I was like, "Oh crap!" I, you know, I could have gone out and got the the uh, the contract. I think the White Sox actually won the World Series that year too. And I look back on it, and there's another decision you make and go, "Well, I'm not sure if that was the right one." But if I would have not, if I'd have called John back and said no and went and played AAA, I might have played one more year. But would that job have been available after that one year, you know, with the Braves again? And I, I might not have got into coaching. I don't know. So, you know, it's funny how things work out. Yeah, and I guess even more so because that first coaching opportunity was in Macon, Georgia, where you had started your career with the Pirates. Correct. Yeah, I made a full circle. Yeah. 
And, I, and I'll go back real quick, Brad, and just say it, it was hard to take the uniform off. Once I decided to coach and I'd sign that contract, I, I probably – I think I I pretty much cried. <laughs> I was very sad because, I'm, you know, when you know it's over, it's – but I I was – I had – I took a lot of pride in, in my minor league and major league career. I, I, I played well. I gave it my all, and, and uh, I was satisfied for what happened in my professional playing career. So I was ready to start coaching, I think, and and uh, started in Macon, made a full circle, and played there with the Pirates, started my career there after I got drafted out of college. And then it was funny because I ended up starting to coach there. So it was kind of like it was meant to be, I think. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Tommy Gregg is our guest here on Pollock on Point. You mentioned playing in college. You played at Wake Forest. You grew up in Winston-Salem, and you had a stellar career, not only as a baseball player there, but also as a football player mm-hmm. for a couple of years, a wide receiver, a kick returner, and a punt returner. And, and we're getting now into what some may say is the best weekend of football in the NFL at the professional level, at divisional playoff weekend but what is it like as a punt returner and how crazy do you have to be to be a punt returner (laughs) yeah man i was crazy no matter what sport it was i was i was all always all out in it and uh yeah i played football at wake i in high school i was all american defensive back and and um and played baseball, obviously, and I played baseball, uh, basketball in high school too. But I just couldn't decide when when I went to college. I had a lot of scholarships for football. Uh, well, I had all scholarships for football, and nobody was really giving me a baseball scholarship. But um, Wake Forest ended up saying, "Look, hey, we'll give you a baseball scholarship, and then you can play football." And so I started my freshman year, and they wanted I was had really good hands as a wide receiver. And Al Groves, our coach, and asked if I would try to return punts. And, of course, that's what I did in high school, so I, I loved it anyway. But, uh, but yeah, doing it in college is a little bit different. I mean, when you have those guys coming down full speed. And and I was had some – just something about – I could not call for a fair catch. I just thought it was chicken. And so if they had a stat ever in college about punt returners – I would have the least fair catches ever. I don't think I ever called for a fair catch uh, in my years playing at Wake Forest. And I and I paid for it. I mean, I had some concussions. If they had concussion protocol back then, I probably wouldn't have played after my freshman year. <laughs> so so if you would have continued, could you possibly have been Ricky Prohl before Ricky Prohl? I think so. I will. I, you know, I think back. When I watch a game in football and I watch some of these wide receivers and they're wearing their gloves and they're dropping balls. I'm thinking, God, and they don't run good routes. See, I didn't have the blazing speed. I had about a 40. My 40 was about a 4.6 time-wise. And, and I had this, I had some speed, but I ran great patterns and took pride in that. And I had fantastic hands. If you threw me the ball, I mean, I was going to catch it. I ran great routes. I came back to the ball. Um, I, I, I think I could have played professionally if I would, you know, I would have put on some weight too. I would have lifted heavier and gotten bigger and stronger. To, to be able to handle the NFL. But um, I did have a, a, a somebody ask me or at least tell me that they were to draft of me, but they um, knew I was going to play baseball. So it was a scout with the Buffalo Bills. Interesting. You know, we, we just talked about your football exploits. Also a great career baseball-wise at Wake, both as a freshman and a senior. You led the conference in hitting, hitting over 400. Both of those years, you led the conference in stolen bases. And those combined efforts ultimately 
led you to being inducted into the uh, Wake Forest Hall of Fame in 2000. What was that honor like for you? How much did that mean to you? Um, you know, uh, that's one of those things in life that you just don't expect. And I got a call, somebody nominated me and I had no even thoughts about it. And um, it was, it was super uh, exciting. I got there for the ceremony and I just kind of couldn't believe it. I'm like, man, and I looked around the room and, and uh, the band, uh, plaques on the wall and they showed me where they were going to put my plaque. And it was right, right near Arnold Palmer. So I'm going, wait a minute, this just doesn't seem right. You know, Tommy Gregg, Arnold Palmer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, wait a minute. Let me take that back. But yeah, it was, it was a thrill. And, uh, and I, you know, I keep up Wake Forest as much as I can with the sports and it's grown so much there and their, their facilities have gotten tremendously better. And uh, it's just cool to see how the growth of that college has taken shape. Hey, let me ask you one more question and then uh, we'll wrap things up. And this has been great to catch up with you and and talk baseball with you, talk a little football with you and, and reminisce a little bit. Uh, with all the time that you had spent in the big leagues and all the different managers that we talked about you playing for and all the time that you have been a coach in the minor leagues, uh, have you ever had the opportunity and or would you welcome the opportunity potentially to become a manager? Um, you know, Brad, yes. The answer to that is yes. And I had an opportunity when I first started coaching with the Braves. I had uh, uh one of the one of the coaches asked me that question. He said, after three years that I'd been in the system, he asked me if I would ever want to manage. And I said, you know, I'm really enjoying the hitting right now and just kind of getting used to that. But, you know, maybe in the near future, um, I would. And and I look back on that. And if I would have said, yes, I'd like to manage, I probably would have been a manager the next couple of years. But it just didn't work out. I just stayed as a hitting coach. But I, I, I think I would have been a good manager. I think I still could be a, a good manager. Um, I'm a motivator, uh, positive guy. I just, you know, I, I think I know what makes players tick individually and can get them going on a daily basis and, you know, have control of a team. It just is something I've thought about and wish that I would have done in the past. And, but it doesn't mean I still can't do it in the future. All right, let me ask you one more question because I lied, actually. Now that you, I want to ask you a follow-up question because we actually talked a little bit about this uh, prior to recording the interview. Do you think maybe in some ways because of all of your experience that actually works against you? Well, it's all about how people perceive you. You know, they might – it could work against me as far as somebody just saying, look, this guy's too old um, and we don't want older guys in our organization. We want younger, vibrant you know, guys, but I'll be honest with you. I'm energetic. I'm still strong. I work out. I can throw batting practice. Uh, You know, I've got a little old school in me with some new school from the analytics and stuff. I mean, I I buy into that. I like it. Um, I don't mind it. I I think it's, it helps the game in certain ways when you can filter it out each player individually. Um, But yeah, um, I think sometimes I think that it, it has worked against me just, just because I'm, just because I'm older, but age shouldn't matter just like any other discrimination, you know, race or color or whatever age shouldn't matter. I mean, if you qualify and you're the best person for that job, that's the way it should be look, looked at. Yeah. I guess that vibrancy is from all the Nutella and banana combinations that you've <laughs> eaten. <right? laughs> yeah. You know that. 
You remember that, right? Okay. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, listen, man, it was fantastic to catch up with you. I know I know we've been in touch a little bit here and there over the last couple of years, but to actually sit down and chat and reminisce and uh, talk about talk about all this has been fantastic. Wish you nothing but the best. Hopefully we'll see you back in uniform sometime soon, maybe even at the big league level. Best to uh, Tanya and the girls, and uh, let's stay in touch. All right, Brad. It was great talking to you. I had a good time. Thanks. Thanks, Tommy. Take care. Tommy Gregg, our guest here on Pollock on Point. Stay tuned shortly for the next episode.